This morning's message from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. As we continue in our series through 1 Corinthians, the church united. The title for this morning's message is The Church as a Reflection of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. And the Word of God says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, we, uh, as we prepare to walk through this text and uh, through the rest of this passage where the Apostle Paul will begin to, to deal with the so important topic of the Lord's Supper. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would enable us to uh, take to heart, to apply to our lives and to this church the admonition of, of Paul. Father, in the end, we pray that you would enable uh, this church to be an accurate reflection of Christ. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The church is not a club. The church is not just another rotary club. It's not the Moose Lodge. It's not the Elks Lodge. Or any other kind of club or lodge or membership group or organization that you might find out in the world that you could be a part of. The church is not just another non-profit organization that seeks to serve the community and thereby enable us to feel good about ourselves and to boost our own self-esteem at night so that we sleep well at night. The church is not just a place where you can see your friends and swap stories and catch up on your week. And the church is not just a place where you can receive free counseling for your marriage, for your kids, for your dog, or whatever the case may be. Although, certainly, that is a ministry that churches need to be a part of, and counseling is always available for free from me for those who desire it or need it. 
But at the end of the day, the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. The church is a living organism. Scripture will make that clear as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, In a few weeks, we'll begin walking through chapter 12. And what we'll see there is that the church is the body of Christ. And when Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll talk more about that when we get there, when Paul argues that the church is the body of Christ, he is not just using metaphorical language. He is not just being poetic. He's not just using the human body as an illustration for the church. But rather, Paul believes and understands that in a spiritual sense, and when I say that, when I say in a spiritual sense, right, don't think, oh, well, see, it's only spiritual, therefore it's simply metaphorical. No, because anything that is spiritual is reality. The spiritual world is real. God is spirit, yet God is just as real as you and I are. He's just as real as this podium is. Demons and angels are real. So to say that something exists in a spiritual dimension is not to say that it's not real or that it's only metaphorical or that it's only illustrative of something else. Paul is going to argue that the church in a spiritual and real sense is the body of Christ. He'll say just as much in places like Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. There Paul says, It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live through Christ. Paul says it's Christ who lives in me. Christ indwells every believer. By the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I understand, and hopefully you do too, that Christ remains in bodily form, seated at the right hand of God the Father. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. The Holy Spirit is, you know, we have a spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That Holy Spirit indwells every believer, hence Christ indwells every believer. Paul learned this during his Damascus Road conversion. Most of you are familiar with that story. Paul is going to Damascus to arrest Christians, seeking to persecute them. Christ, the risen Christ, appears to him on the Damascus road. And he does not say to him, Paul, Paul, why are you... Well, he says, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting my followers? He doesn't say that. Why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my disciples? He says, why are you persecuting me? You know, for a brief moment, I just have to imagine Paul scratched his head and thought, you're dead. What do you mean? You, we killed you. I think that's where Paul's uh, ecclesiology began to develop 
And he began to understand that all believers are in fact the body of Christ. For this reason, the world holds the church to a higher standard. And they should. They should hold the church to a higher standard. Because, you know, companies, business companies out there in the world, they can engage in all kinds of activities. They can do things that will upset people. And sometimes people will even protest and boycott the company for a short time, but it doesn't usually last forever. Many of you have uh, heard of you know, what happened with Anheuser-Busch. That's old news. But we now know that they are bouncing back. People, celebrities have been photographed who came out against Anheuser-Busch. They're now drinking Bud Light again. Why? Because they love their beer. They will probably fully recover. Yet at the same time, I have met a number of people over the years. Sadly, I've met a number of people over the years who grew up in the church, used to attend church regularly, and then something tragic happened in the church. They were hurt by the church. They were betrayed by the church. They left, never to return. Years ago, that was decades ago, I vowed never to return. People tend to extend very little grace to churches when they go wrong because they hold the church to a higher standard. And they should. Because the church is supposed to be different. The church is supposed to be different from the world. The church is supposed to be different from every other organization that is out there in the world. The church is supposed to be the body of Christ. The church is supposed to be the face of Christ. The mouth of Christ, the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ. There's a popular song out there, many of you have heard it, where the chorus says, If we are the body, then why aren't our arms reaching? Why aren't our hands healing? Why aren't our feet moving if we are the body? How Christians live... Corporately, together. When we do church, how Christians live and behave corporately matters just as much as how we live and behave individually. Possibly more. Because what you do in the privacy of your own home, most people won't see it. But what we do as a church becomes public. And this is what Paul is concerned about with the church in Corinth. And this is what Paul is going to address in this passage this morning. And there is a theme, by the way, that continues to run. Paul is sticking with a particular theme that continues to run from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. In the previous section that we looked at with head coverings, chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, recall that Paul is concerned with uh, believers either honoring or dishonoring their head. Right? He pointed out to them that uh, 
by their behavior, by their behavior, men can either honor or dishonor their head, who is Christ, and by their behavior, women, by how they behave, by how they talk, women can either honor or dishonor their head, who is their husband and Christ. And so now in this section... Here he continues with that same theme and he's making clear to the church in Corinth that by our behavior as a church, we can either honor or we can bring great dishonor upon our head who is Christ. Christian churches bear the name of Christ. Paul believes that the church exists for one purpose, to glorify God, to worship God. Which means, from the old Anglo-Saxon word that that comes from, it means to ascribe worth to God. That's how it was pronounced hundreds of years ago, worth-ship. Because it was ascribing worth to something outside of yourself. And as a church, how we behave either ascribes worth to God or it dishonors God. And so he says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, first of all, let me just point out to you, if you're taking notes, this uh, section that we're looking at breaks down neatly into four parts. First, in verse 17, there is the rebuke. Then, in the first part of verse 18, there is the report, what he's heard. In other words, here's the rebuke. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm rebuking you. I've heard a report. So the first half of verse 18, there is the report. Then in the second half of verse 18, that is 18b to verse 21, there is the assessment of that report. What Paul thinks of it. And then in verse 22, there is a closing rebuke. So the rebuke acts as an inclusio in this passage. He begins and ends with a very strong rebuke against the church in Corinth. And so first the rebuke. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. That's interesting. Because remember, back in verse 2, he did commend them. So Paul starts with the good and then he moves to the bad. Right? Let, me, let, me, let me tell them what they're doing right first before I rebuke them. Back in verse 2, he said, Now I commend you because you remember me and in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So back in that passage, Paul says, Look, I want to commend you for remembering what I have taught you and for continuing to practice it. Now, he had to clarify some issues with the head coverings. There was obviously some debate going on. There was a little bit of confusion going on. We understand the confusion over head coverings, right? 
So they're, they're a little confused as well. But nonetheless, they are attempting to carry on the teachings and the traditions that Paul had given to them. And so Paul commends them in that passage. But now here he says, I do not commend you. Why? But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Ouch. Let me put it to you a different way. Here is essentially what Paul is saying to you, saying to the church in Corinth, that when you come together, you're actually doing more harm than you are good. When you come together on Sunday mornings, Paul says, you are doing more harm than good. Ouch! Imagine receiving that as a letter, as a church, from the Apostle Paul. The greater harm that they are doing, Paul is going to go on to explain... For example, in verse 21, he says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, they're just coming together for some sort of chaotic, debauchery kind of party that is happening, and there is no reverence in what they are doing. It is selfish what they are doing. He'll go on to say in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And then verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. Quite literally, Paul says, you're killing people. People are dying because of what you're doing on Sunday mornings. What a terrifying thing to think about as a church. Yet there are many churches today where this remains true. Where they do more harm than good on Sunday morning. Churches that are not welcoming to visitors, standoffish, ignore them, we don't know you. We're used to being around our friends. Churches that are judgmental about what a person is wearing when they walk into church or the color of their skin is just wrong. Because if we are the body of Christ, we must be loving, welcoming, warm to everyone who walks in the door. Regardless of what they look like, Regardless of what they're dressed like, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what they might smell like. I remember years ago reading the autobiography of uh, Chuck Smith. Some of you are familiar with his name now. There's a movie that was recently made. Uh, it is partly about his life, the, uh, the Jesus Revolution. Uh, it is a movie that I would recommend. Um, though Chuck Smith uh, was not reformed in his thinking, he has since gone to be with the Lord, so he is reformed now. 
He is someone that I, for years, have always admired um, because of his heart. He, he had a heart for God, and he had a heart for people. And uh, one, of the, one, of, one, of the, one of my favorite scenes in that movie that is in the book I read years ago, probably some 20 years ago, about his life, is, uh, you know, he, he ministered. God used him to reach out to the, uh, to the hippie subculture, uh, the group of people that no one else would talk to. Uh, long hair, dirty, didn't wear shoes, uh, and, and churches would shun them, sadly. And Chuck Smith reached out to them and invited them into his church. And many of his elders were upset by the fact that he was doing this. One even verbally said to him, they are ruining the carpet by coming in here with their dirty feet. Really? Really? So for the next several Sundays after that, Chuck Smith in his coat and tie stood outside the church at the front door with a bowl of water. And as each hippie walked in, he had them sit down and he would wash their feet one by one. That's what it means to be the face of Christ. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. This is what the church in Corinth is not doing. And so now Paul gets to the reason for his strong rebuke. He says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So here's the report. This is what I'm hearing. It's being reported to me that there's divisions within the church. And of course, we know that there are divisions within the church, right? Paul starts the letter that way. He says back in chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He'll revisit this again in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, for I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only, at, only in a human way? So Paul knows that there are divisions that are happening in Corinth. However, in chapter 11, the divisions specifically have to do with how the Lord's Supper is being handled. They are wholly mishandling the Lord's Supper. Because you have to understand, you know, when we read 1 and 2 Corinthians, we tend to think that the whole church was messed up. But the reality is, there are always some within the church who 
know the right thing to do. And there were probably some of the church that say, look, it, ought, it not, shouldn't be done this way. This is wrong. It ought to be done this way. You don't know what you're talking about. We're not going to listen to you. And so they are simply not taking the Lord's Supper in the way that it should be. Something that is so important and so serious, hence the serious tone of the rest of this passage, particularly next week as we begin to look at the Lord's Supper and in the following week, the strong warning against mistaking the Lord's Supper, we're going to see that this is a serious, serious matter. And I know that sometimes it's hard to think of it that way. You know, we pass the basket around. It's got these little cups in it. You know, we open it up. They're plastic. I don't know. We do this week after week. But we need to always be careful that we don't make the mistake that the Israelites did in the Old Testament. That when they first built the temple, it was glorious. It was grand. It was the temple of the living God. And by the time you get to Jesus, they're selling cattle in it and goats and there's feces everywhere. Eh, it's just a building. It is so easy as Christians, as the people of God, to take that which God has given us, which is sacred and reverent and holy, and over time begin to think this is meaningless. This is undoubtedly what happened with the church in Corinth. And so Paul then provides him with, with his assessment of the report. Here's the report, and this is what I think of the report. And he says, beginning in the middle of verse 18, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine, genuine among you may be recognized. He says, I believe it in part. In other words, what I am hearing, <laughs> not a compliment, what I am hearing is not difficult for me to believe, is what Paul is saying. It's not hard for me to believe this negative report that I am hearing about the church. Well, I tell you, if I was a member of that church, I would have been so ashamed of getting this letter from Paul. Of course, what is interesting is the reason Paul gives as to why he doesn't have any trouble believing the report. Because you would think in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 3, the passage we just read, that the next thing Paul would say is that I don't have any trouble believing the report because I already know there are divisions among you. But that's not what he says. What he says in verse 19, For there must be factions or divisions among you. There must be factions or divisions among you. In order that, here's the reason, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, Paul understands... Paul understands that while unity within the church is something as believers we should strive for. Right? We should, Ephesians chapter 4, we need to strive for the unity of the faith. He also understands that division within the church is 
inevitable and even to an extent necessary. That's what Paul is saying. For there must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Divisions within the church to an extent are a necessary evil in order to distinguish between the wheat and the tares. Those who are genuine and those who are not genuine. This is because God's Word and those who seek to faithfully teach and live by God's Word will always be a thorn in the side of those who seek to take a willy-nilly approach to Christianity and to the church. You know, this is what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 10. We tend to think that, you know, Christmas comes around and we sing that song and we were all singing about, you know, that Christ was born in the major to bring peace and goodwill toward all men. But what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. These are verses that we like to forget about. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Verse 35, he explains what he means. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We might even say that a person's enemies will be those of his own church. Because Jesus is not just talking about the gospel dividing believers from unbelievers. While it is true that the gospel does separate, the gospel does separate true believers from those who are antagonistic toward the gospel, those who are hostile toward the gospel, there are, and I have known in my life, many unbelievers who profess to be believers and have no problems claiming to embrace the gospel for themselves. They don't have any problems saying, oh yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. I get that. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and then He rose from the dead three days later. And because I believe that, I go out and I live my life any way I want. You see, they're not offended by the gospel. Many of them are even in church every Sunday. Jesus is not just talking about the gospel dividing believers from those who are antagonistic to the gospel. Rather, he is talking about those who are are simply annoyed by those who want to preach and teach and hold to and practice what God says in His Word. They embrace the gospel, but they reject the idea of biblical inerrancy, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, 
They balk against the biblical roles of men and women. They balk against biblical teaching on homosexuality. They balk against biblical teaching on abortion and euthanasia. But these are the same people that you'll find in many churches every single Sunday with Bibles. And they open them. But what they teach and what comes from across the pulpit is not God's Word. They are simply tickling, itching ears. And so it's not until you begin teaching and preaching the hard truths of Scripture that you are able to identify those who are genuine and those who are not. Those who are genuinely committed to the truth of God's Word, regardless of how it lands on us. And those who want a buffet style of Christianity. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, verse 12... Paul says in that passage, what I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. In other words, what we get from this passage is that only one-fourth of the church is following the right person. Christ! Because as wonderful as the Apostle Paul is, as wonderful as Apollos is, as wonderful and important and magnificent as the Apostle Peter is, you cannot get to heaven by following Peter or Paul or Apollos. You only get there by following Christ. You only get there by being a disciple of Christ and of the Word of Christ. So within 1 Corinthians, within this church, there is at least one faithful remnant that is following the right person, Christ. We are never to be followers of a person. You are never to be followers or disciples of me. Or MacArthur or Sproul, or Piper, or Charles Spurgeon, or whoever else. We are followers of Christ. We are disciples of Christ. We submit to the Word of Christ. Thus, in verse 19, Paul is saying, the fact that there are divisions among you, he says, makes sense. That makes sense. This is to be expected, Paul says. Because within any church, there will be some who cling closely to God's Word, and there will be some who resist it. And Paul understands that. A classic example, and we've, we've seen many examples of this throughout church history, but one that recently has been on my mind is uh, the example of, of John Calvin. You know, John Calvin... The year uh, 1536, making his way from France to, uh, to Strasbourg, Switzerland, making his way through Geneva. And uh, as he stops in Geneva, he is, um, uh, uh, the, the, the rumor uh, gets to William Farrell, who hears that Calvin is, is in town. And so he goes and he meets with Calvin, 
and he attempts to persuade him that you need to stay and help us uh, start the church and establish a solid, biblical, reformed church in Geneva. And Calvin says to him, I'm not interested in that. I'm on my way to Strasbourg and and I plan to, to just write books and to lecture and to teach. And William Farrell Uh, sort of viewing himself as a modern-day Isaiah, uh, brings down a curse upon John Calvin and says, if you don't stay, then I pray that God will curse your ministry. (laughs) John Calvin relents, and he decides to stay and to pastor and to establish the church in Geneva and to preach solid, biblical truth from God's Word. And two years later, the church removed him. Without even a church trial, they said, you're fired. Get out. Go somewhere else. So he leaves. Interestingly enough, about four years later, they ask him to come back when the church is just simply falling apart. And he does. He does. But the thing they didn't realize about John Calvin is that he was going to preach the truth of God's word regardless of how it landed on the hearers of the church and regardless of the ramifications that may happen to him. Interestingly enough, the reason they ran him out of town, if you're wondering, the the big reason that rubbed him the wrong way is that he wanted to withhold the Lord's Supper from members of the church that were living in open sin. Imagine that. The point is that when men faithfully preach, teach, and live out God's Word, there will always be those within the church that will not tolerate it. They simply will not tolerate it. Paul understands this. Divisions within the church, to an extent, is inevitable. And even an unnecessary evil. And so, his first assessment of what is happening in Corinth is that it's inevitable. His second assessment is that what they are doing is not the Lord's Supper. Listen to uh, uh, the sarcasm. Paul is using sarcasm here. He's, He's actually quite fond of it. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, you may come together and eat a meal together and drink wine and unleavened bread and you might call it the Lord's Supper, but whatever it is you're doing, Paul is saying, it is not the Lord's Supper. It is something else. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. That is not the Lord's Supper that you are partaking in. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be a picture of the unity of Christ. It is supposed to be symbolic of the fact that we are one body. We are unified. We are harmonious. We love one another. We care for one another. We treat one another as Christ would treat one another. Yet in Corinth it seems... It seems that they are driven by selfish motives. Survival of the fittest. There seems to be some discrimination that is happening, even among the poor. 
Look at the end of verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Well, how would that be happening? Recall that in the first century world, uh, the Lord's Supper, unlike we do today for the sake of convenience, uh, the Lord's Supper was an entire meal. Remember that, that, that in the first century world, there was no such thing as the 40-hour work week. People just worked, um, before Christianity comes onto the scene, people just worked seven days a week. I mean, that's just a part of life. You know, you, you get up and you work. I mean, they would take days off here and there, uh, you know, when they felt like they needed it. But, you know, every day the cows need to be milked. Every day the eggs need to be collected. I mean, they just worked every day. Christianity comes around and they don't work on Sundays. And this is new. What they were doing is they were gathering for an entire meal. They hadn't seen each other in six days. There was not even the such thing as a Wednesday night study. Monday through Saturday, they all go to their farms, they go to their ranches. So when they get together on Sunday, they would have a meal together. And as a part of that meal, they would take the Lord's Supper. And very likely, the food came from the people that, that would show up. They didn't expect the, the house where the home church was gathering to provide all the food. So people would bring food with them and they would bring drink with them. And it may be, it may be that those who were poor were not able to bring anything. People that just walked in off the street, heard about Christianity... I don't have any food, no clothes, no, no, no food, no, no wine, nothing to contribute. And it may be that what is going on here is that some of them are saying, well, that's fine, but the people who brought food will we'll eat first. Since you didn't bring anything, you have to wait. And when we're all done, if there's nothing left, well, you know, too bad for you, you didn't bring anything. Maybe try to bring something next time and then you can eat. But it's only fair that those who brought the food and those who brought the most, the most, they should eat first and get their fill. Drink up all the wine. Get drunk. You didn't bring any wine, so we'll, we'll do the best we can to make sure there's none left. It would appear that the very thing that James rebukes his readers for is what is happening in, in the church in Corinth. James chapter 2, verse 1. James writes, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, we could add with a bag full of food and a jug full of wine, and a poor man in shady clothes comes in, who maybe has no food and he's got nothing to contribute, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and has the food and the wine and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, have you not met, then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And so Paul is shocked at their behavior when they take of the Lord's Supper. So Paul wraps 
this whole section up now with another rebuke. He wants to make sure that they understand he is not happy with them. So he begins with a rebuke and he ends with a rebuke in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul is shocked. Particularly with something so sacred and so holy as the Lord's Supper, which he will help us to understand more clearly next week. And this is why he will remind them again of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Surely he's already taught them this. That's why they're practicing it. Remember Paul spent about a year and a half with the church in Corinth when he first planted it before leaving that church. So he would have taught them the Lord's Supper. He would have practiced it there with them. But in his absence, the Lord's Supper has simply spiraled out of control. It's become more of a party. It's all about self. It's all about me just feeding and drinking and getting drunk and neglecting the body of Christ. And Paul will remind them what happens to a church when they misuse the Lord's Supper. Because in the end, how a church functions, how we behave corporately as a church, how we treat one another, how we treat strangers and visitors who walk through the door is to be a reflection of the unity, compassion, mercy, and love of Christ. Yet too often in too many churches, pride and selfish ambition is what gets in the way of us bringing the greatest glory and the greatest honor to Christ who is our head. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be like the church in Corinth, that we would not listen to the teachings of the Apostle Paul and then go our way and forget what was said. Lord, we pray that this would always be on the forefront of our minds, that we are the body of Christ. We are to be the, the face of Christ and the hands and the feet of Christ, not only to the world outside, but to one another as well. We pray that you would help us to always keep in mind before we interact with each other, certainly before we correct or rebuke one another, that we would always take the time to ask ourselves, how would Jesus do this? How would Jesus correct this person? How would Jesus point this believer in the right direction? How would Jesus respond to this visitor walking through the door that looks different from the rest of us. We pray, Lord God, help us to be truly the body of Christ. In Christ's name, amen.